Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. You can live like a king on as little as $1,500 a month in a tropical paradise if you're willing to experience a little adventure. Now that people are working from anywhere, they're moving to places where they can live pennies on the dollar compared to the U.S. Today's guest, Mike Cobb, chairman of ECI Development, builds and finances homes in countries such as Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, Belize, and El Salvador, and more to come. So today we have with us a guy that, frankly, had we not had such a great pre-recording conversation, I would just be intimidated and scared, which I was a little bit because he has done brilliant, brilliant things. He is the chairman and CEO of ECI Development, which develops land primarily in Central America, master plan communities, like like big stuff here. But he's also a director of an insurance company, Carlsberg Insurance, director of a publishing company, Hemispheres Publishing, uh, a newsletter about offshore banking, foundations, asset protection. This guy has a very impressive CV, but also I can tell you just from a few minutes, a very nice guy. That was an interminably long introduction to Mike Cobb. Mike, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. And I too enjoyed the pre, pre-interview conversation. It's, it's always nice to get to know folks and, 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 you know, kind of get a look behind the curtain a little bit. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. You got it. And, you know, we got some uh, commonalities and, you know, my intro to you is genuine. I, you know, I was preparing for the discussion. I'm like, this guy has just like done some amazing stuff. Before we get into the business, you know, we covered the fact that you're in uh, West Virginia uh, as we speak. And, and I see you went back in the day to Allegheny College. Are you from originally that neck of the woods, Pennsylvania, West Virginia? Yeah, well, Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. I heard, you know, you mentioned that you're from Ohio. I grew up about an hour north of Pittsburgh and then went to Allegheny College just south of Lake Erie. Yeah. Where, where in Ohio are you from, by the way? I am from Cleveland. And, oh, yeah. yeah, so they're on the lake. So what town it, north of Pittsburgh? Ah, Slippery Rock. Slippery rock. (laughs) Yep. Slippery rock. There really is a slippery rock. And then I'm from there. So Western Pennsylvania. I was sent to boarding school in Western Pennsylvania called Kiskey Prep. Oh, yeah, sure. They had the good sense to expel me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's in Fox Chapel, isn't it? No, it's you still have a you still have a Pittsburgh accent, my friend. No. It's in a teeny town called Salzburg. Salzburg, okay. Yeah, every now and then I say something like Fox Chapel, it does come out (laughs) with a Pittsburgh accent. It's true. I was reading yesterday or the day before about some celebrity that was from Fox Chapel, but uh, of course I won't be able to remember and make it relevant. And then you went to to school. and, And so what did you do after school? You know, so I majored in political science, very useless major. And when I graduated, I didn't have any real career possibilities. So I, I went to Washington, D.C., the you know, D.C. metro area, Northern Virginia. And I started working in the computer industry, got lucky. I ended up on the PC side of things. This was 1986 and just, you know, right time, right industry. And, you know, did really, really well. I uh, helped a company 
grow significantly for about 13 years and then uh, left there when I when I started dabbling in, in real estate finance, actually, in, in Central America. I started a little mortgage company down in Belize in, in 1996. And that was my first kind of foray into the, that part of the world. And in, in 98, I left the computer business and went full-time you know, down in Central America. How do you go? So you're working in Northern Virginia, you know, really uh, popular metro. You're you're on the fast track in the computer business. I can't imagine you woke up one day and said, you know what, I th- this isn't uh, what I really saw myself doing for the rest of my life. I know I'll open up a mortgage company in Belize. There you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting. So I I went down in '94 with a buddy of mine who's a lawyer and he's now my business partner. And, uh, you know, he was doing asset protection trusts for doctors and Belize has great uh, financial legislation. And so, you know, he was going down there quite a bit. He invited me to go down with him one time and I did. And I I fell in love with the Ambergus Key Belize. This was, you know, 1994. And I thought, oh man, this is, this is like Key West, you know, 30 years ago. And so I said, you know, next time you come and let me know and whatever, a few months later, we went back and and uh, we, we bought a couple condos. And what was interesting was, so if you can imagine these buildings, they're two up, two down, so fourplex buildings, 11 of them around a pool, and the open end is the ocean, right? So you got 44 condos looking out across a pool and direct ocean views, beautiful. And, and he started the second horseshoe and we bought in the second building in. And over the rest of 94 and into early 95, nothing was happening with the three buildings that were started next to us. And so Joel and I are laying by the pool one day and the developer comes by, Jim's his name, and, and we say, hey, Jim, what's the deal? Why, why, aren't you, why aren't you working on the next three buildings? I mean, they're like you know, partially constructed, but you know, just ghost town there. And he goes, you know, I'm, I'm stuck. He said, most of my buyers come down and you know, they, they need financing and and we said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, you know, you guys wired the money and, and but most of the people, they can put, you know, 20, 30% down, but they don't have, you know, $100,000, $150,000 to, to, to wire me. So I have to finance all these people. And, w- and when we had negotiated the deal, uh, we had gotten a 20% discount for paying in full up front. And so my business partner, he's smart. I mean, you, you talked about you not being smart. I'm not smart. I was the C C student in college. I, you know, I like to say I had a double major: beer and girls. <laughs> my my business partner had a double major: poli sci and German. Okay, so uh, anyway, so he's a real smart guy. Anyway, he uh, he asked the developer. He goes, "Hey Jim, so you're holding all this paper? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's you know the condos are the." back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, would you sell us your paper for a 20% discount? And Jim didn't even like, he just kind of cocked his head and said, yes. And like, that's how the business was born right there. There was an opportunity to help him out of a situation, which was buy his paper. It was, I mean, this is crazy. This is now 1995 going into 96. I mean, this, this was, you know, 10 to 12% paper and we were buying it for 80 cents on the dollar. And it was a tremendous business. So we, you know, we, I went to my bunch of my buddies in the computer business and Joel went to a bunch of his doctor clients and, and we rounded up a couple million bucks and we went down and we bought, you know, most of his paper, not all of it, but most of his paper. And then we said, went up and down the beach and we found other developers in the same situation and we bought their paper. 
and that's really how the mortgage company was started. It was it was seeing a hole in the marketplace where you know that needed to be served. Right, there was a place to serve consumers, and and we saw that. We started a little mortgage company. It was a part time business, and you know until 1998. That that really is what we did. We went to Belize, you know, whatever four or five times a year with a bunch of money, and we bought paper. and And then in '98, we bought a resort that we knew was going into foreclosure, and that's how we ended up on the real estate side of it, as opposed to the financing side of it. And that that occurred in '98, and my wife and I moved to Belize uh, for about six months uh, to turn this foreclosure property around, and and then it just you know kind of rolled from there. But but you know, Roger, it's always been about finding a need in the market and serving it you know and and how we got into the development business actually was because i was always the guy on the ground looking at the properties like i would be the guy that would inspect the collateral i mean joel would look at titles and paperwork and contracts and all that kind of stuff and my job was to go you know into every condo or every home and look at them and crawl around underneath them and up you know i mean just you know do the physical inspection uh and and what was amazing was we would see these uh, like just simple free problems to fix. I'll just give you a couple examples. You'd walk into a condo or a home and the door handles would all be at a different height. And, and you'd say to yourself, like, how does that even happen? Well, if, you know, three guys go in to install door handles and they're all three different heights, they put their arm at a right angle and drill a hole through a door, right? So every, I mean, at least you have three different heights in, in every door handle, right? Countertops that are too high, too low, lighting in the bathrooms that, you know, it doesn't work, right? You know, I mean, just like simple free things or, or the, my favorite one, and I wish I would have had the presence of mind to take a picture of it. I remember walking into, you know, a home and, uh, uh, there was in the living room, there was one outlet on one wall and they had two power strips plugged into that one running each direction with an extension cord plugged into the power strip <laughs> to get it around to another outlet strip so they could have power on all four walls, right? And and like we just looked at that. We said, these are free or nearly free problems to fix. And that's how we got in the development business. We said, we can fix all this. We can deliver a US North American standard product and we can do it for you know the same money. And that's how we got into that business. And, and again, seeing a need and, and, and serving it. Let me go back to the, the mortgage business. I'm not a sophisticated finance guy and it was, is an understatement, which I'll demonstrate with this question. But so you're holding the paper. So basically now the buyers of these condos are paying you and not the developer. That's kind of the position you took yeah. over. Is that correct? Exactly. So let's say they owed the condo developer a hundred grand. We would give the condo developer 80 grand. He would assign the mortgages to us and we would collect a hundred thousand plus 12% interest over you know, usually a pretty short period of time. We usually had 10 year notes. And so many of them were four or five years into them, right? So we would have another six years to go or in some cases, you know, eight, nine years to go, right? But we would collect the hundred grand with a 12% interest, but we only paid 80 grand for the note. So yeah, it was, it was a, really, really good business. And and actually, it still is. We uh, we were able to take our mortgage company and turn it into a bank in Belize in 2003. Uh, and we, you know, we've hired professional bankers. I'm, I'm on the board and I'm on the management committee. But but like you, I'm not a I'm not a finance guy. I'm a poli sci major, right? I just, you know, so we've hired professional bankers who run the bank. 
but it's still really a, a mortgage company. It's just, you know, it's, we, you know, we, we still do a ton of mortgages and now we do them throughout the region, not just Belize. We do them all over you know, Latin America uh, for North American consumers predominantly because uh, there's no financing. I mean, your bank up there in California is not loaning you money to buy a condo in Belize and, you know, or, or Panama or wherever. And, and most banks in Latin America don't want to lend, you know, foreigners money. So it's kind of an interesting hole, hole in the market. Interesting. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So the developer, though, I'm not hearing the necessity for him to get out from underneath that project. Uh, yeah, great question. So, so you know, he, he needs big chunks of cash to buy concrete, steel, pay labor, order doors, windows, toilets, right? And so if he's getting, a, if he's getting you know, say 20 or 30 payments of, of uh, you know, $800 a month or whatever the number is, right? He's, he's dying. It's not enough money to order the materials he needs to finish the next, you know, three condo buildings, but it's not enough to die either. And so it was this, it's this weird uh, purgatory, right? The developers in the region find themselves in. And, and it's interesting because over the 25 years that we've had our development company now, we've had a lot of opportunities to uh, come in and rescue projects. And, and we've done that now on three separate occasions where we've, we've rescued a project that was kind of in this purgatory situation that was a you know, high-quality uh, product. You know, the, the, the land was beautiful. The product that we're building uh, was great. But you know, ultimately, it's interesting. We look at people. And, and we've had lots of deals that we didn't do. In fact, uh, we can usually spot people we don't want to do business with. But there was a deal in Ecuador that came our way and we hired a private detective to check it out. We, we usually do hire a private detective to check out the potential partner and we tell them ahead of time we're going to do it. So it's no surprise, right? Um, but, but we do deep background checks on people that would be a potential partner. And, and this guy did not just say he did not pass his, his private detective background check. And we, we left him at the altar almost just because like we'd gotten that far down. But, um, but we'll only partner with, with high quality people that, you know, that we can, you know, trust and do business and have the same kinds of, you know, business ethics that we have. And I mean, we've been around, you know, 25 years and, and I would say that, you know, the, the overwhelming, majority of our uh, competitors uh, that, that were around 25 years ago are simply just not here anymore. And, and I think it, it has to do with people, both you know, external relationships, uh, but then also the internal you know, team that we've built over the years that matters. I mean, it, it's always about people, always. You know, it sounds like you've put, you just put your finger on just such a brilliant niche. And it seems like I'm just guessing just because of baby boomers that just more and more people. And with COVID, it's probably been on overdrive, but I'm just, I'm guessing just people. You're you're right. 
people moving down there in Belize. I was in Belize. I was in Ambergie Key, and this was like 1992. Well, just on vacation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What were you doing? Uh, Rod, you got to tell me. Nobody was going to Belize in 92. What were you doing there, man? <laughs> it, it, it was just a vacation. It was, I, we, we were in Costa Rica and then we yeah, decided to yeah. go to Belize. It was, and, and I remember taking a boat. You had to take a boat to get there. And I remember yeah. it was like, I'm like, I never want to go back. But unlike you, I, I never <laughs> went back. <laughs> you went back. <laughs> this was, it was heaven. It was like, it was like nobody was there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it was just, I'm like, this is in the blue waters as clean as i mean it's just it was yeah. it was magical for sure so, so funny but but it's amazing that you've just filled such a like incredibly obvious niche so the development in foreclosure that you took over in 98 who who did yeah. you take that over from were these uh central americans were these americans who did you take it over from no it was uh the property had originally been developed by a guy out of new jersey and uh, he had sold it on terms to a Canadian guy who came down. So it was, it was basically, it was a resort. So the, so the guy from New Jersey had built a little resort, right? Thatched huts kind of thing. And it was called Pliador. And then that's when we bought it. Anyway, the Canadian guy bought it on a seven-year term. I mean, this is, by the way, this is pretty common stuff. And this is why the world I work in, uh, we, in fact, by the way, Roger, we have a great resource. If anybody listening to this, uh, this podcast wants to get a copy, they should email you. Uh, please, uh, we'll give you a link that you can send to people for our consumer resource guide. Um, it is, if, if anybody's thinking about doing anything offshore, investing, buying a home, a retirement property, a vacation property, anything outside of the U.S. or Canada, uh, this consumer resource guide is an extremely valuable uh, resource. It's it's not a sales document. It's truly a, a, a consumer guide. But anyway, um, th this is the kind of stuff that goes on. So what, is, guide, what is it? Before uh, we forget, before we forget, yeah, what is yeah. it? How do we find it? Oh, you know what? I'd like to make sure. So uh, if people type in info at ecidevelopment.com, ecidevelopment.com, and in the in the subject line, just write, you know, Rogers Podcast Consumer Guide. What I will do is I will send them a link to download that consumer resource guide. Uh, but please put in that, you know, that Rogers Podcast so we know they were listening to this. And we'll send you a copy of that. The thing that we don't understand, because you could never do this in the U.S. and in Canada. So this, this Canadian developer uh, purchased this property on terms. He put, I don't know, put a hundred grand down and was, was paying, I'll make up a number, you know, whatever, a hundred grand a year for, that doesn't work because it was about 900,000. Anyway, paying 150 grand a year, right? So you put a hundred grand down, 150 grand a year. So he was buying it over a seven year period. However, as it got towards years like, I don't know, five, maybe four or five, he realized that he wasn't going to be able to pay it off. And in fact, I guess it was a balloon payment as I think about it. Anyway, he couldn't pay it off. So he started building condominiums and selling condominiums to basically raise enough capital to pay it off. Well, that wasn't working. And basically, he was going to come to the end. And uh, this guy from New Jersey would have literally swooped in and I mean, taking all the condos that that people thought they owned because they didn't own them because the Canadian developer didn't have the right to sell them because he didn't own the land, right? 
But again, coming out of North America, we would we would never even think to check that because nobody could sell you something that they didn't have the right to sell. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, I mean, there are all kinds of agencies and regulatory things, and you know, real estate and lawyers and just everybody, title companies. I mean, you got all these different entities that protect you in a in a in a seller beware environment, which the United States is, right? Anyway, so uh, so we were able to come in and 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 basically pay off the uh, New Jersey developer. Uh, the Canadian guy went away, and we were able to preserve and protect the rights of about twenty condo buyers. They weren't owners, condo buyers, uh, who then ultimately did become owners, um, which was great. So, so it was it was it was a win win for everybody except for the Canadian developer who pretty much went away empty handed, but. Shame on him for for trying to sell something to people he didn't own, and and like it was going to go bad for you know for twenty people. So anyway, so so but but again, the lesson there really is again coming out of North America, we we don't know what we don't know, and when we move into a buyer beware marketplace, um, we we are absolutely out of our element, and 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 so if I had to kind of sum up the consumer resource guide in just a couple simple sentences, you know, we don't know what we don't know. We need to forget what we think we know uh, because assumptions are very dangerous. And it's really about humility. Uh, The more humble we are, the more willing we are to ask questions and to listen in the transactional process uh, overseas, that the more likely it is that we're going to make better decisions. And then if we have something like the consumer resource guide or, or, you know, other types of due diligence documents uh, that are out there, you know, we can be a lot smarter. We can be, you know, better consumers in a, in a very foreign environment that, you know, may or may not. I mean, look, Ambergus key, you were there. Everybody speaks English. It feels very comfortable, right? Oh, this is just like America, only tropical. (laughs) Well, you know, no, it's not. (laughs) So, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. The way you present things is, is extremely amusing. And you know what you, what you just said about that, you know, just being humble and willing to ask questions and basically forgetting what you know and your assumptions, I think could be applied to pretty much anything or, or everything. Yeah. So fast forward to today or last couple mm-hmm. few years or however you want to define it, you know, what, what does Mike Cobb do every day now and what are you working on and what are you spending all your time on? <laughs> oh goodness! Um, you know, it, it, the the answer depends on how glib I want to be, and and we're having fun, so I'm going to be really glib. <laughs> you you do nothing. You do nothing to just collect checks. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I I like to define my job as taming chaos every day because we're working in you know five countries of Central America, and we've got a bunch of different things going on. Obviously, we, we still have you know the, the whole finance side. We're building things. We're running little resorts, and you know. So I mean, there's there's a lot of different elements to the you know to the to the recipe. But what tends to happen is is I've got great people throughout the organization, and they they really do a tremendous job. But the chaos is challenging, and. I guess when it when the chaos bubbles over and what anyone else can handle, it bubbles to the top, and then I have to get my arms around it and wrestle that bear to the ground and and make decisions. That's the other thing, right? I mean, taming chaos is one part of it. Uh, the other thing is to make decisions. I I spend my day most days just simply making decisions uh, that that you know other people aren't either aren't willing to or aren't you know able to. 
and then accepting the full responsibility and accountability for those decisions. And the thing that's that thinks challenging in any business uh, is to I, I call it predicting the future, right? I mean, anticipating or you know, looking out ahead, looking around the bend or looking over the hill, right? Sometimes you can get a good look around the bend, but sometimes you got to kind of like you know take take kind of an educated guess about what's coming up, and and that's certainly my role in the organization i've you know got great people around me and and we we have mo- morning meetings we have a team team management meeting our team leaders are on the phone every morning for an hour together and you know we talk about stuff and we we kick these things around but but in the end you know the decision making uh does end up on my desk if, if no one else you know can or wants to to make those decisions and and then i do stuff like this roger i mean Goodness, I mean, this is fun. I mean, I, I do a lot of writing, I do a lot of speaking, a lot of podcasting, and and stuff like that. And I speak at a lot of conferences, uh, you know, all over. And it's nice to be back in front of people, with people again, and um, not not just zooming, you know, <laughs> whatever. That was an interesting two years. By the way, a, a few minutes ago, you said something that really most people have not picked up on, and and I'm going to compliment you on your on your savvy. You talked about COVID in a positive way for business, and most people make the assumption that COVID was a business killer. Your your point about it being good for our business was was spot on. Our business went from you know, about three and a half million in, in sales in 2019, and we'll we'll end this year over 20 million. So we've seen wow. you know five five six x growth, and I would say that probably two-thirds, three-quarters of the growth was a direct result of COVID or not the disease itself, but the impacts, the lockdowns, the mandates, uh, the stuff that really has, I think, antagonized a, a good portion of you know, U.S., Canada. Uh, we've seen Aussies, we've seen Kiwis, we've got Brits who uh, ha- have become customers. So uh, it's been an interesting dynamic to be, to be serving uh, a group of people who are, you know, looking for alternatives to to what they see are, are draconian infringements upon their freedom. I'm fairly, you know, agnostic on that. Again, I, you know, I see it as an opportunity to serve people who are looking for a solution to a to a problem that they they have or they perceive or or both. And we were, you know, again, we talked about this before we got online. I feel very very fortunate that we. You know, we have built a platform to call it that that allows us to respond to you know, the consumer need in, in a very quick way, uh, but also in a very important way because you know one of the things that I think we deliver is psychic peace, and it's not just the COVID. I mean, for for twenty five years or twenty years since we actually started developing and, and offering you know homes and condominiums to to the marketplace. If you were a retiree or if you are a retiree and you're looking at a fixed income of Social Security and a small pension, $1,500, you know, $1,800 a month, and now we have inflation, but even 10 years ago, there quote unquote was no inflation, whatever. But $1,500, $1,800 a month, where are you going to have a very high quality of life on $1,500 a month in the U.S.? And, and, and that's tough. Whereas in Latin America, in a country like Nicaragua or Panama or Ecuador, I mean, you can actually live really well on 1500. You get north of two grand, like you're living really, really, really well. And, and so for, for people who wanted nicer weather or organic foods, I mean, that's the other thing people don't think. I mean, it's tough. Sometimes we think about quality of life 
we want a higher quality of life, we've got to spend more, right? I mean, I, I call it whole paycheck, but if you run down to Whole Foods and you, you want to buy a grocery cart full of organic and free range and all that kind of stuff, get out three Ben Franklins because you, you're, you're a few hundred bucks to fill a cart full of organic, free range, kind of you know, hormone-free, blah, 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 right? In Latin America, it's the exact opposite. You know, I lived in Nicaragua for 14 years and we had a bag, a coffee sack, Okay. There was a coffee plantation. Friends of ours, you know, own it and run it. And they had an organic, a huge organic farm and, and animals. And we would get, you know, meats and cheese and all kinds of stuff delivered. But the basic bag of produce, fruits and vegetables, a coffee sack, imagine that delivered, the delivered to our home every Tuesday was $8 a month, a week. Okay, but even even still, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. And so, like, so all of a sudden, and that was the fruits and vegetables, and we'd add some meat and cheese and, you know, chicken and whatever to it. And I mean, we probably, we probably spent 40 bucks a week, but literally we ate 100% organic, free range, no pesticides, no nothing, right? For about 35, 40 bucks a week. And like to do that in the States would be hundreds of dollars a week, right? So, and something even as simple as having a maid. Like we had a full-time maid. She didn't live in, but she probably would have, but we didn't want that. But a full-time maid was $180 a month. Wow. And right, no chores, no chores for $180 a month. And so all of a sudden, like if you have $1,500 a month and, and you want someone to come clean a few times a week, you know, that's 50, 75 bucks maybe, right? And, and you eat organic and that's, you know, whatever, you know, 35, 40 bucks a week. Well, we were feeding a whole family, by the way. If you're single or a couple, it's probably less. You can't eat that much food, right? But I mean, it's just insane how inexpensive it is. And so for people who were in that retirement mode with a fixed income, right? This idea of psychic peace, where can I, where can I have my money really deliver a high quality of life at $1,500 or, or, or today with the folks that are looking to, you know, find a, a different freedom or more freedom, right? I mean, we, we deliver, we deliver comfort, psychic comfort, psychic peace to clients because we give them something that they probably in many cases don't know that they could get or don't quite know how to get it. And when we deliver that, it's, uh, it, it's profoundly significant. That, that's the word I was looking for. It's significant. Let me, let me uh, just make sure I was following you. So you said you went from about three and a half to 20 million in yeah. COVID, but you've done so many different things. You're a developer. Are, are you talking about 20 million of what? Of condos and homes? Okay, condos and home sales, right. Gr- gross revenues. Yeah, Got gross it. revenues. Uh, okay, yeah. I understand. And, and how many units is that in 20 million? Is it 100, uh, 150? Yeah, it's a little over 100. Yeah, a little over 100. Got it. Just an incidental because you you have a hard stop that I want to be respectful of. How long have you been in the States and why did you move back? What took you to West Virginia? Well, so I grew up in West Pennsylvania, moved to the Northern Virginia area, and uh, I would go visit uh, Shepherdstown. One of my father's friends uh, growing up, we would come down from Slippery Rock to see. uh, He was a speechwriter for uh, Goldwater and Nixon, Carl Hess. A uh, very wow. famous early libertarian. Yeah. Anyway, he lived in Shepherdstown or outside Shepherdstown. So it was, you know, it was whatever middle school, high school. Dad and I would road trip down to see Carl once a year. And so I got to know Shepherdstown. And then when I lived in Northern Virginia, I would take, you know, 
it was date place, right? It was a fun place to take dates and go to Shepherdstown, and it's a cool little town. And it's uh, again, it's in, you know ninety minutes west of DC. So uh, we we bought a home there in in two thousand, and then in two thousand two we moved to Nicaragua for what we really would thought would only be a couple years, two three years at the most, to get our project started. But you know we got down there. You know, everybody hired architects, engineers, marketing, accounting. We hired a chief operating officer to run the business. And about three years into it, and Carol, my wife Carol and I went out to dinner one night and we said, you know what? Do we want to go back to the States or do we want to stay here? And we, we talked about it and we, you know, we made some lists and, and, and we decided to stay. And, and so, uh, we ended up in Nicaragua for a total of, you know, 14 years. Uh, but when, our daughter was 15. Both of our daughters trained in classical ballet in Nicaragua. Here's another quality of life, cost of living thing. They were training with Nicaragua's prima ballerina. This woman trained in Cuba, trained in Russia, danced uh, all over the, you know, the, the European and Russian theater, came back to Central America, danced as Nicaragua's prima ballerina, and then, you know, got old. I think she got to be like 30 or something. <laughs> all right. And she, uh, she started a school and, uh, and my daughters uh, started taking ballet at very young age and and uh, had world-class training with this woman, Annabelle, in Nicaragua uh, for, I mean, just outrageously. And I mean, I think we paid $200 a month per girl for like, you know, six days a week, some private lessons. I mean, it was just insane how inexpensive it was with the best ballerina in the country of Nicaragua. I had danced, I think, with the Marinsky in, in Russia. So, I mean, like this is this is the kind of stuff that you just like, wow, it's hard to imagine. Anyway, so they were at a ballet competition in Panama and one of the judges in Panama was from the Joffrey uh, Ballet Program in New York City who offered our 15-year-old daughter a scholarship to go to New York City and dance in their in their uh, Joffrey's uh, high school program. And we sent her for a semester to see if she liked it. And and guess what, Roger? A six, she was 16 at that point, a 16-year-old girl in New York City. You think she loved it? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, right? So anyway, so I can assure you that there was no way Mama Bear was living in Nicaragua with baby bear in New York City. So we uh, we moved back to the States. That was five years ago. Came back to our home in, in Shepherdstown. We, we, it was rented the whole time we were gone. So and we gave the renters 90-day notice and we moved back in. And, and uh, Amanda, the oldest, is now dancing professionally uh, in Annapolis at the Ballet Theater of Maryland. So she's she has successfully followed that career. And, and we've been back, you know, five years. We have of a 17-year-old who's also dancing ballet um, and in high school at the moment. And uh, I don't know. I think I think Carol and I will probably expat again at some point, you know, when when the girls are really out and kind of settled. And and uh, I'm not sure where. It might be Nicaragua. Uh, might be, you know, it might be Portugal. I don't know. <laughs> oh, nice. God, I don't know. So houses, condos in around 100 yeah. or so, I'm getting then around... And I'm yeah. sure it varies, but 200 grand. And so how much is a nice house and how big is it in whether it yeah. be Nicaragua, I mean, Costa Rica, wherever? Yeah. So, I mean, for, for example, we have, we have, we have condominiums that are, you know, livable. They have a small kitchenette, right? So they're, they're a small kitchenette kind of condo starting at about 125, 130. A true one bedroom, that's more of a studio, a true one bedroom kind of in the high 100s. 
and, and in Belize, they're about three blocks off the ocean. In Nicaragua for 150, 175, you're looking at the Pacific Ocean. Homes in the neighborhood, again, a few hundred yards off the water, but in a beautiful you know, community. 150, 175 for a thousand sco- you know, square foot, two bedroom, two bath kind of home. And then an oceanfront, oceanfront homes at about 1,200 square feet, uh, starting at about 350. So again, very, very affordable uh, homes uh, in the region. And, and then, you know, again, once you're there, you know, the cost of ownership, HOA fees, uh, much lower than the U.S., property taxes, uh, way lower than the U.S., and then groceries, you know, movies, eating out, anything like that, just insanely inexpensive uh, compared to the U.S. Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it is. And and you know what? For the right folks, it, it really is a great fit. And, and, you know, it's it's probably only really right for, I mean, it's, it's, you know, 5% or less of the U.S. population, probably, you know, 1%, 2% of the U.S. population, you know, would ever really pull the trigger on it. But, you know, the other thing that's happening, and this, this is, this is one of the growth areas. I said that, you know, that, that, you know, that the whole COVID kind of thing was maybe two thirds, three quarters. The other third or whatever, um, is the true digital nomad remote worker. We are seeing, you know, the younger generation of people, we really have been given permission for the first time in human history. Roger, for the first time in human history, location, work and the location of work have been, uh, decoupled. I mean, this is powerful, huge. I know you're old enough to remember, you know, the book Megatrends or Future Shock, right? You know, right. Toffler and Nesbitt, right? I mean, these guys coined the word post-industrial society, whatever, 30, 40, 40 years, 50 years ago, the 70s, right? 50 years ago. And so this idea of post-industrial was around for 50 years before it really happened. And what held it from happening, I mean, I've written some articles and given some talks about this, is, is cultural lag. Right where where bosses were so worried that if they let their employees work from home, they were going to watch TV all day, and the employees were afraid to ask because if you ask to do that, you're probably going to get passed over for promotion, right? And so you had this cultural lag that kept work and the physical location together. When for at least twenty years they could have been decoupled, right? And and so boom, COVID comes along, and all of a sudden people have the They've been told to go home, right? You have to go home. And so what we're seeing is productivity is up in most studies. There are a few studies showing that it's down a little bit, but overwhelmingly, the studies are showing that productivity is up significantly. And so if home can be, you know, uh, you know, 20 miles outside of the office in, in the Bay Area, right? Home can be 2,020 miles in, in Panama or Costa Rica. And so a lot of people... Uh, again, it, I say a lot of people, I mean, it, but it, it went from zero, <laughs> you know, two years ago to, to maybe 30 or 40 people in the last year, 18 months, uh, in our business anyway, who have said, you know what, we're, we're going to move overseas and we're going to do our work from Belize or Nicaragua or Panama. And I think that actually is, is probably the single biggest growth area for our business in the coming you know, few decades. I mean, retirees will always be there, quality of life, fixed income, but that remote worker is really going to be one. But to me, the most exciting thing is, is this, this notion that, that we've really, for the first time in human history, 
decoupled work and the location of work. And I mean, just like any big shakeup, I mean, they're going to be winners, they're going to be losers, and it'll be an exciting time. But, but my goodness, this is this is you know societal <laughs> societal shift. It's, right? disru- it's that it's it's, dis- it's disruption. I want to be sensitive at time when you say fifteen hundred <laughs> a month. Okay, we we push it a little bit. When you say fifteen hundred yeah. a month and it wasn't a hard number, does that mean like what it would cost somebody to live a great life down there? And and yeah. would that include the mortgage or what does that fifteen hundred two thousand a month mean? Sure. So what we we look at a couple different things, right? We we look at sort of the cost of acquisition and or renting. A typical rent, it, like so, for example, in in a country like I'm going to use Ecuador because it's the least expensive country, and we don't we don't work there yet. We will work there, but we don't work there yet. You know, you can rent a really nice small apartment in a city like Cuenca, which is a you know an old colonial city, uh, about five hundred thousand people, beautiful. I mean, all the services too. They have two symphonies. I mean, think about that. Wow. I mean, yeah, two symphony orchestras, right? Anyway, so Cuenca, Ecuador, you can rent a nice little apartment for three, three fifty a month, wow. right? So, right. So if you have 1500, call it 500 a month, right? Call it 600 a month, throw in your utilities, right? So you've got $900 a month left over for, for food and eating out and other stuff. Yeah. I mean, actually in Ecuador, in Ecuador, you can, you can actually have a pretty good life for a thousand bucks a month, a pretty good life. You can have a very nice life at 1500. Nicaragua, a little bit more expensive. Panama, a little bit more expensive. You know, there you're sort of maybe, you know, 12, 12, 1300 to kind of get the good life, 1500 to 1800 to get the, you know, what I would call really nice life. But yeah. And that's if you rent. Uh, if you sell a home in the US and you can, you know, you can take the money from that and flip it into a, to a home down there and have no mortgage, then any money that you would have factored in for rent just you know moves into quality of life. Wow. How, how does one get a hold of you if they want to buy a home, buy a condo, however you would want to interact with somebody? Coming back to that website, info at ecidevelopment.com is the best and easiest way. And, it, and again, in the subject line, the best thing to say is, you know, Roger's podcast, you know, attention, Mike Cobb. And the folks who grab those emails will forward it over to me and we will, you know, get you a consumer resource guide. Or uh, if you're looking at properties, we have different property consultants. Uh, there are also residency consultants. Uh, different people kind of focus on different countries because there's a lot to really dig into. So uh, depending on what country you're interested in, what you're looking for, I would make a, a personal introduction to one of our property consultants, residency consultants, uh, get you started down the right path. And you know, and we also have handbooks uh, for each country that we work in and, and even countries like Ecuador that we don't, Mexico, we don't work there, but we anticipate it. So we've developed country handbooks and we'll certainly... Uh, make sure that folks get a copy of a you know a country handbook of you know whatever country they're thinking about too. And you primarily now you're P- Panama, Nicaragua, and and uh, which other countries? So right now we are in Belize. That's right. Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, and El Salvador. And then within the next couple years, uh, we will be we're actually working to take the company public. That's something that we're you know we're doing so that we can really grow our business. We we've been growing our business for 25 years, you know, what I would call very slow, conservative, steady growth. Um, but we see the opportunity to serve 10, 20 times the number of consumers that we can currently serve 
with who we are as an organization. And, and so we're taking the, all the steps to take the company public so that we can, you know, we can really expand in some important critical ways to be able to serve many times the number of consumers that we can currently serve. And, and so part of the, part of the expansion plan is properties in Argentina that would deliver a, a vineyard style community. Again, this idea that, you know, if you've always wanted to live in the Napa Valley in retirement and you've got, you know, three, four million bucks, go do it. But, you know, if you got three, four hundred thousand dollars, we can offer the same kind of lifestyle for 10 cents on the dollar in a country like Argentina. Uh, Ecuador for the folks looking for the extreme value proposition uh, that are, they're really pinched on their fixed income. We want to build a community in Ecuador, probably in Cuenca, uh, that would serve that, that group of folks. And then something in Mexico as well. Uh, we're looking at doing a joint venture with a property owner there sometime next year that would be an agriculturally based community. Uh, a lot of agro resilience built in. It's a far, it'll be a farming community. But, but again, it's still a neighborhood with community, but with an agricultural element. Uh, blended into it. So yeah, th- those are the the properties that are coming over the next two, three years. Got it. Very, very exciting. You know, I have a feeling it, it sounds like the last thing in the world that's going to be a challenge for you is demand. It sounds like you're yeah. just going to have to figure out how to scale up and, and address the demand. <laughs> that's what it sounds you, like. You to nailed me. it. Scaling up and it's uh it's a challenge, but like I said, that's one of the bears I'm getting my arms around right now to wrestle to the ground. So <laughs> got it. Mike, yeah. this has been so much fun, man. It's been a way different podcast from any of the others I've done and so exciting and, and uh have a fantastic uh, year next year and I look forward to being in touch with you. Roger, likewise. I hope you'll come visit us one of these days and uh we'd love to see you down south. That makes two of us. Thanks, All Mike. Right. See you later. Thanks, Roger. Bye Bye-bye. now. 